Hello and welcome to the Curious Clubhouse Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, this is a weekly podcast where I, your host, Jason, take you on a brief, informative journey into a specific subject or topic that has helped shape and influence today's pop culture. Last week, we talked a little bit about the Predator franchise. So this week, I thought we would talk about the Alien franchise. Can't do a Predator episode without then doing an Alien episode, in my opinion. Both of these universes somewhat go together, as you'll soon find out a little bit in this episode. So if you're new to the podcast, as always, I'll tell you a bit about what the Alien franchise is. This week's episode will include a couple of extra segments. This week, we'll have a curious timeline where I'll tell you a bit about each of the Alien films in turn and where the best place to start in the franchise is. We'll also, of course, touch on some origins and inspirations within the Alien universe, as well as go over what I am calling the Curious Life Cycle, where we will discuss the life cycle of a xenomorph, or as it's better known, the Alien. We'll also, of course, touch on some other properties surrounding the Alien universe, and of course, end things with the Curious and Unusual Facts portion of the episode. But before we dive in here, I did want to quickly touch on in last week's episode, I said that a good place to start within the Predator series was Prometheus. That's actually not true. Prometheus is a prequel film in the Alien franchise. So if you're looking for a good place to start within the Alien series of movies, Prometheus or Alien Covenant are the ways to go there. The best place to start, in my humble opinion, in the Predator franchise is, of course, the movie Prey which came out this year on Hulu, as I mentioned in that episode. It is absolutely fantastic. So this episode also will come out the Friday after Thanksgiving. So I'm recording a little bit in advance here. So I just want to say happy Thanksgiving to all of my listeners out there. I hope that you all are having or have had an absolutely wonderful Thanksgiving. So without further ado, let's dive in here and let's get curious. So what is Alien? The Alien franchise is a science fiction horror franchise consisting primarily of a series of films focusing on the the voracious extraterrestrial species Xenomorph XX121, more commonly referred to simply as the Alien. Unlike the Predator franchise, which mostly consists of standalone movies, the Alien films generally form continuing story arcs, the principle of which follows Lieutenant Ellen Ripley as she battles the aliens in a future time setting. Newer films, preceding Ripley's exploits, center around the android David, exploring the possible origins of the aliens and their connection to an ancient advanced civilization known as the Engineers, which we touched on a bit last week. Produced by 20th Century Studios, the franchise began with the 1979 feature film Alien and continued with three sequels, Aliens in 1986, Alien 3 in 1992, and Alien Resurrection in 1997. A potential fifth film has been in development hell since the release of Alien Resurrection. A series of prequel movies has also been produced, including Prometheus in 2012, and Alien Covenant in 2017. Related to the Alien franchise is, of course, the Alien vs. Predator franchise, including the feature films Alien vs. Predator in 2004 and Aliens vs. Predator Requiem in 2007, which pits the titler Aliens against the Predator creatures from the Predator franchise. So that's just a little bit about what the Alien films are, what they consist of, 
And then, of course, the Alien vs. Predator movies are tied into those as well. So now that we know a bit about what the Alien franchise is, let's dive into a curious timeline, and I'll tell you a bit about what each movie is. There'll be some mild spoilers here, so if you haven't seen the movies, if you don't want anything spoiled, you know, put us on pause. We'll still be here when you come back. The spoilers will be very, very mild, as I'll just tell you a bit about each movie where I think the best place is to start in this series and what they kind of consist of. So without further ado, let's dive into this here. The first movie that I think you should begin with in the franchise, in my opinion, of course, you guys might have a different viewing order that you prefer, and that's totally okay. Uh, but the first movie up is Alien vs. Predator. And this movie, Santa Lathan leads the Antarctic set adventure with the Wayland Utani Corporation, sending a team of scientists to uncover a strange heat anomaly under the ice. This is a vital moment in Alien Canaan as it establishes the early history of the corporation that sent the ill fated Nostromo into space in 1979's Alien. Granted, in the original movie's timeline, that doesn't happen until over a hundred years in the future in 2122. So that's just a tiny bit about Alien vs. Predator. So now let's jump into Alien vs. Predator Requiem. The sequel to AVP takes place immediately afterwards. Basically here, we get a Predalion, which is a xenomorph chest burster that exploded out of the chest of the dead Predator from the first movie. When it escapes, the ship carrying it crashes in Colorado, and that's where another Alien vs. Predator matchup occurs. So we get both the Alien vs. Predator movies, and then from there we jump into Prometheus. In this movie, a group of scientists head off in on a theologically driven quest to work out just where humans came from. On their way, they discover the origin of the Xenomorph and proliferate its creation. We can probably expect Prometheus to at least play a part in the upcoming Alien series, whether it's the corporation preparing for the mission or just nods to the ideals that drove it. Thing as Scott is involved, you can assume that these newer additions to Kanan will be relevant. And the series that I'm referring to there is, of course, referring to the brand new Alien TV series that's being developed by FX and Hulu. Really looking forward to that. So definitely hoping that we do get some Prometheus uh, connections there, or at least some connections to the engineers to keep the caning going. So that's a bit about Prometheus. Now let's talk about Alien Covenant. Alien Covenant is both a sequel to Prometheus and another prequel to Alien. Just over a decade after the events of Prometheus, we join the Covenant, a colonization ship with its very own android named Walter, played by Michael Fassbender. It's clear he's a descendant of David from Prometheus. After the ship is damaged, a small crew ends up on an Earth-like planet where they find David, who's been cultivating new versions of the creatures from the first film. And that, of course, leads us into the first Alien film. The crew of a spaceship are waylaid when their craft picks up a distress signal and they're distracted per their employers, or excuse me, they're directed per their employers' protocols to investigate what they find is nothing short of a nightmare. And boy, is it. I tell you what, man, there's these xenomorphs, these aliens they find, they are absolutely scary. They are nightmarish 
and of and a nightmare, as I mentioned. Then that, of course, leads us to Aliens. James Cameron's action-heavy sequel centers on a group of Marines who are sent to investigate a space colony after the Wayland yutani Corp loses contact with them. They're accompanied by Sigourney Weaver's iconic action hero from the first film, Ripley. She only joins the crew on the promise that they'll destroy the creatures. But of course, Wayland has other plans. And it just spins out of control. Which of course brings us to Alien 3. Immediately following the events of Aliens, we find Ripley as the sole survivor of the cryostasis pod she and Newt escape in. Unluckily for her, she's landed on a maximum security prison facility. In a nasty twist, here the xenomorph arrive via a face hugger and a sweet little dog. The final act of the film introduces us to the concept of the alien queen and sets up the vital connection between Ripley and the creatures she was once dedicated to killing. And that, of course, brings us to the final film in the main continuity, Alien Resurrection. Set two centuries after the third Alien movie, this might be the most outrageous of the sequels. It was directed by French Arthur's Maverick Jean-Pierre Wanette. Here we get Ripley as a hybrid xenomorph clone, and she's once again trapped on a ship full of ignorant people who do not understand the danger of the aliens they're messing with. So, I mean, it's just crazy. Over and over and over again, the Wayland yutani Corporation... These people, they just continuously attempt to trap these aliens, to study them. And the more they try, the more they fail, the more people die. These monsters are absolutely vicious. You know, when I say they're nightmarish, I can't understate that enough. If you haven't seen these movies, you definitely need to. These creatures are the stuff of absolute nightmares. And they're borderline almost unkillable. Their defensive tactics, their offensive tactics are absolutely unlike any other creature that I've personally ever seen in film. And it's just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And so after Alien Resurrection, that of course leads us into the Alien TV series that I mentioned before. The series which currently has Fargo creator Noah Hawley attached to Helm is set to take place on Earth in the near future. The show deviating from the franchise's previously established Wayland Utani Corporation and instead focusing on a new shady company for the franchise. Despite that, Langraf promises the series will return to the franchise's original roots. So, despite the fact that this new series that's in development is kind of shifting itself away from the Wayland Utani Corporation, based on the fact that they do say it is going to return to its original roots, I do hope that it ties into the films in some way. I love a good connective thread in a universe of movies, which is one of the reasons why I love the Alien movies, because in some way they continuously connect to each other. I love a good connective thread, and I hope that even though this new series is going to gear away from Wayland yutani I hope that it does still find a way to stay connected to the films overall. So now that we know a bit about what the series is to come, now I want to talk about some of the origins and inspiration behind this iconic franchise and how it kind of ultimately came to be, specifically as it relates to this first Alien movie, because without this first movie in 1979, we wouldn't have all of the other fantastic movies and subsequently this new series to come, you know, that we have today. 
So the script for the 1979 film Alien was initially drafted by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. Dan O'Bannon drafted an opening in which the crew of a mining ship are sent to investigate a mysterious message on an alien planet. He eventually settled on the threat being an alien creature. However, he could not conceive of an interesting way for it to get onto the ship. Inspired after waking from a dream, Shusit said, I have an idea. The monster screws one of them, planting its egg in his body and then bursting out of his chest. Both realized the idea had never been done before and it subsequently became the core of the film. This is a movie about alien interspecies rape, O'Bannon said in the documentary alien evolution that's a scary that's scary because it hits all of our buttons o'bannon felt that the symbolism of homosexual oral rape was an effective means of discomforting male viewers which in my opinion is just wild <laughs> absolutely wild in fact you know I, i'm so surprised they were actually able to get away you know with that because it does hit a lot of people's buttons it's a lot it's a very touchy subject you know it can be a trigger trigger for some people um, so yeah, very, very crazy there. The title of the film was decided late in the script's development. O'Bannon had quickly dropped the film's original title, Star Beast. So glad he dropped that title. I don't like it. But could not think of a name to replace it. I was running through titles, and they just all stank, O'Bannon said in an interview, when suddenly the word alien just came out of the typewriter at me. Alien. It's a noun, and it's an adjective. The word alien subsequently became the title of the film and by extension, the name of the creature itself. So that's a bit about the where the title of the iconic franchise comes from, where that first movie comes from, and a little bit about the inspiration. Now let's talk a little bit about the design for the alien. So the alien design in creation, the design is credited to Swiss surrealist and artist H.R. Geiger, originating in a lithograph titled Necronom 4 and refined for the series' first film. Alien, the practical effects for the alien head, were designed and constructed by Italian special effects designer Carlo Rambaldi. Species design and life cycle have been extensively augmented, sometimes inconsistently, throughout each film. After O'Bannon handed him a copy of Geiger's book Necronomicon, Scott immediately saw the potential for Geiger's designs and chose Necronom 4, a print Geiger completed in 1976, as the basis for the alien's design, citing its beauty and strong sexual overtones. That time, that the creature could just as easily have been male or female was also a strong factor in the decision to use it. 20th Century Fox was initially wary of allowing Geiger onto the project, saying that his works would be too disturbing for audiences, but eventually relented. Geiger initially offered the completely Geiger initially offered to completely design the alien from scratch, but Scott mandated that his that excuse me, I can't talk today. But Scott mandated that he base his work on Necrom 4, saying that to start over from the beginning would be too time-consuming. Geiger initially signed on to design the adult egg and chestburster forms, but ultimately also designed the alien Plantoid LV-426 and the space jockey alien Vessel. Excuse me. 
Geiger conceived the alien as being vaguely human, but a human in full armor, protected from all outside forces. He mandated that the creature have no eyes because he felt that it made them much more frightening if you could not tell they were looking at you. Geiger also gave the alien's mouth a second inner set of pharyngeal jaws located at the tip of a long tongue, like pro which could extend rapidly for use as a weapon. His design for the creature was heavily influenced by an aesthetic he had created and termed biomechanical, a fusion of the organic and the mechanic. His mock-up of the alien was created using parts from an old Rolls-Royce car, rib bones, and the vertebrae from a snake molded with plasticine. The alien's animatronic head, which contained 900 moving parts, was designed and constructed by special effects designer Carlo Rambaldi. Geiger and Rambaldi together would win the 1980 Academy Award for visual effects for their design of the alien. So that's a bit about how the alien creature came to be, how they designed it, what it's made of. Uh, Really interesting stuff there. You know, just the materials they chose to use, the designs they chose to use, you know, the ideas from the Necrom 4 uh, draft that they used. Just absolutely fantastic stuff, in my opinion. I thought it was really interesting uh, to touch on how the creature came to be and where these ideas came from. So now that we know a bit about, excuse me, man, I cannot talk today. So now that we know a bit about the origins of the alien creature and how it came to be. Now I want to talk about the life cycle of the alien. Talk to you a bit about how this alien is born, how it's created, you know, what its various life cycle stages are. So getting into this, aliens are eurosocial life forms with a caste system ruled over by a queen. Their life cycle comprises several distinct stages. They begin their lives as an egg, as most things do, which hatches a parasitoid larvae form known as a facehugger, which then attaches itself to a living host, as its name suggests, by latching onto its face. The facehugger then impregnates the host with an embryo known as a chestburster, which after a period of gestation erupts violently from the host's chest, resulting in the death of the host. The chestburster then matures to an adult phase, shedding its skin and replacing its cells with polarized silicone. Due to horizontal gene transfer during the gestation period, the alien also takes on some of the basic physical attributes of the host from which it was born. The adult phase of the alien is known by various different names. The adult aliens have been referred to as drones, warriors, workers, and sometimes soldiers, similar to the way ants have been defined. The names of the adult phase have also been used to name different types of adult phases of the alien in numerous sources, including video games, comic books, and novels, as well as the films. But only in the commentaries by the teams who created the films, no official names have been given to the adult stage of the alien in the films themselves. So throughout various media, you know, which we'll touch on a little bit more in the Curious Properties section of the episode, you know, they have been known by various names, but most people just know them as xenomorphs or the alien. So that's a bit about the adult phase. Now let's touch on the queen. This is really cool. I love the queen version of the alien. 
The queen aliens are significantly larger and stronger than the normal adults, being approximately 4.5 meters or 15 feet tall. Their body structure differs also, having two pairs of arms, one large and one small. The queen's head is larger than those of other adult aliens and is protected by a large flat crest like a crown, which varies from queen to queen. Unlike other aliens, the queen's external mouth is separately segmented from the rest of her head, allowing her to turn her mouth left and right almost to the point where it is facing perpendicular to the direction of the rest of her head. In the second film, Aliens, unlike other adults and queens, the queen has had high heel protrusions from her feet, uh, which is just, it looks really wild, really strange. Uh, so definitely check out that second movie so you can get kind of a, a view of what the queen looks like in that movie because she looks way different than your typical queen does. Egg-laying alien queens possess an immense ovipositor attached to their lower torso, similar to a queen termites. Like some insect queens, there appears to be no need for an alien queen's eggs to be fertilized. When attached to her ovipositor, the queen is supported by a biometrical throne that consists of a lattice of struts resembling massive insect legs. So the throne in and of itself is really, really fascinating. It, it just looks like this gigantic, spidery, spindly thing that the alien queen props herself up on, which honestly, I think it's made from other alien body parts. It, that's what it looked like to me. Again, you know, if you want to get a good view of that, you know, you can Google it or you can, you know, watch that second alien movie because you get a good shot of the queen herself and that throne like structure that she's on. So now that we know a bit about, about the queen, let's talk about the egg cycle of the alien. The egg-laying alien queens possess an immersive ovipositor attached to their lower torso, as I mentioned, similar to a queen termites. Uh, oh, excuse me, I already went over that. Okay, so yeah, that's just a bit about the the queen's life cycle, what she looks like, you know, what her throne looks like, and that's just a bit about the life cycle of an alien. You know, covering from its early stages of being in the egg to bursting out of the egg into the face hugger, which attaches itself to the face, then impregnates its host, which then erupts from the chest, creating the chest burster phase, which then eventually it grows up. And I will state that when the alien bursts out of the chest, it grows at a very rapid rate. It goes from being a tiny baby chest burster to a full-grown alien and like an hour, maybe less. Uh, so super accelerated uh, life cycle as it, as it pertains to growing up. So that's just a bit about the alien's life cycle. Now, of course, I want to touch on some other properties that consist within the alien universe. And of course, novels, you know, we always have books, it seems, based on these uh, pop culture properties that we talk about. Several novelizations of each of the six films and some comic books as well, of course, comics. I, of course, have some of these comics as well as original canonical novels based on the franchise have been released. The original novels include Alien Out of the Shadows, Alien Sea of Sorrows, and Alien River of Pain, marketed as the canonical Alien trilogy, and the short story collection Aliens Bug Hunt Out of the Shadows and River of Pain were adapted into audio dramas in 2016. Dean Foster published Alien Covenant Origins, a novel set between the events of Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Now, touching on these books, you know, Alien 
Sea of Sorrows, Alien River of Pain, and Alien Out of the Shadows. Like I said, they were adapted into audio dramas. You can find them on Audible. I have listened to them. Uh, they are fully scripted, casted audio dramas, and they are absolutely fantastic. Man, they are really, really good. It's like watching Alien in your ears. It's super, super good. I can't stress that enough. So if you're a fan of the series, definitely check out these Alien novels on Audible. Because Man, they're super awesome. The a Alien Covenant origin book, I, that's also on Audible. I haven't listened to it yet. Uh, definitely going to in the near future. The Alien Bug Hunt, I have listened to. Uh, it's a fantastic collection of various stories about the aliens that you don't get anywhere else. They're, they're not part of the movies. You know, they've not put, been put on screen but they are part of the universe and they're really, really good. So definitely highly recommend you check those out. That's just a few of the alien novels that have been written and adapted into audiobooks and audio dramas. Of course, there are many, many more. Uh, man, the, the novel portions of Alien, very, very wide. Tons of books, tons of audio dramas in the alien universe. Now let's talk a bit about, about man, I cannot talk today, guys. This is crazy. Let's talk a bit about comic books. Of course, as I always say here, anything we talk about, there's going to be a comic book attached to it. And Aliens is no different. Uh, in addition to Alien, the illustrated story, a graphic novel adaptation of the original film, there have been numerous appearances of the Alien, in addition to Alien vs. Predator comics, featuring the Alien vs. Predator battling Dark Horse comics published Fire and Storm between 2014 and 2017, crossing over the continuities of the Alien prequel series with the Alien vs. Predator franchise. Dark Horse Comics also published a number of other miniseries crossovers featuring the alien species as an enemy pitted against prolific characters from other continuities. In 1995, the miniseries Superman slash Aliens featured aliens fighting against Superman, while his powers are diminished between 1997 and 2002, a two-part miniseries called Batman slash Aliens was published, depicting Batman fighting against a horde of aliens in a jungle bordering Mexico and Guatemala. In 1998, Wildstorm, now a part of Image Comics and Dark Horse Comics, published an inter-company crossover event called Wildcats Aliens. Featuring the Wildcats battling the aliens, Green Lantern, various aliens, and intercompany crossover event between Dark Horse and DC Comics features a plot beyond either continuity where the aliens residing on the Green Lantern planet, Mogo, get out of control and must be exterminated. In 2003, Dark Horse published Judge Dredd vs. Aliens, depicting an alien invasion in Mega City 1, necessitating for Judge Dredd to intervene to destroy the infestation. So that's crazy to me. Uh, you know, prior to doing my research for this episode, that there is, you know, alien comic books, as we, you know, we've just now discussed. But the fact that they crossed them over with Superman and Batman and Judge Dredd and Green Lantern is insane to me. Like I said, there's nothing they won't do in comics. And I love the fact that the alien species, the xenomorphs, are a part of comics because that means we could see anything. You know, it would be amazing because we have the multiverse in the MCU now, you know, if we could get some xenomorphs as part of the MCU. Most people probably think that's insane. 
A lot of people probably don't agree with it. I think it would be awesome. I think it would be incredible. Uh, prior to doing my research for this episode, I did not know that there was Batman and alien crossovers or that there was Superman alien crossovers. So super cool to learn that. You know, Marvel has published some alien comics. I have several of them myself. They're fantastic. Uh, in July 2020, Marvel Comics, here we go, announced that it has acquired the comic book rights to the Alien franchise in addition to the rights to the Predator and Alien vs. Predator franchises. Marvel announced the Alien series in December 2020 with Philip Kennedy, Johnson writing, and Salvador LaRocca illustrating. It issue number one was released in March 2021. So I have, like I said, I have that first Marvel run. Uh, they're absolutely fantastic. They just launched a new run this year, uh, which I did not get a hold of. I probably should have, but I just, at that point, I have so many comics I have yet to read, so I needed a break. But anyway, I digress. So that's just some of the comics. You know, it's part of the comic universe, uh, you know, as is most everything we talk about here. And so that's just a bit of a breakdown of some of the various comics that the aliens are part of. So now I want to turn your attention to theme park attractions. This is, I thought this was really, really cool. An alien themed attraction debuted at the Genting Sky World theme park in Malaysia in February 2022. So just this year, the park previously known as 20th Century Fox World has faced significant delays during construction. However, a licensing deal with Fox and new parent company, the Walt Disney Company was reached pre-show footage of the ride was released online and appears to detail a Wayland yutani themed drop tower attraction. Alien was also previously represented in the Great Movie Ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World from 1989 until the attraction's closure in 2017. The attraction featured a scene based on the first film in which riders were taken through the Nostromo encountering audio-animatronic audio representation of Ripley and a Xenomorph. So just a couple of really cool sounding uh, theme park attractions there. It looks like one of these attractions uh, are no is no longer available, but of course we have this new attraction that just opened in Malaysia in February 2022. So if you're near Malaysia, you live in Malaysia, you know, check that out. You know, sounds really, really cool. I would love to check it out. Uh, it's too bad I don't live in Malaysia, but that's just a uh, few of the various properties, you know, theme park attractions, novels, comic books, you know, as I touched on earlier in the episode, there are many different video games in the Alien universe, you know, Alien Fireteam Elite, which is the newest game that has released really, really cool multiplayer, you know, shoot 'em up game, and also Alien, uh, Alien Isolation, uh, which is a first-person horror shooter game, which I played absolutely fantastic, as well as some other arcade games and i just read today actually that there is another triple a alien game currently in development not a lot of info is out there concerning this project so it's still in its early phases uh so but definitely looking forward to a new alien game uh to come so that's just a few of the properties within the alien universe and now i wanted to close out the episode as always with some curious and interesting facts surrounding the alien movie specifically the first movie in the franchise curious fact number one here the famous title was created by a hollywood legend the iconic title that opens the movie was designed by legendary oscar winning designer saul bass famous for designing the opening credits 
and posters for classics like Vertigo in 1958, Anatomy of a Murder in 1959, and The Shining in 1980. The original idea was to have the title made up of flesh and bone, but when Ridley Scott came on board as director, he thought this was too graphic and Bass was brought in. Bass remains uncredited in the movie though, which is unfortunate in my opinion. I mean, if Bass created this iconic title sequence for this first movie, I think he should have at least been credited. So not that he'll ever listen to this, but Bass, thank you for the incredible opening title sequence of the first Alien movie, as it is really cool and it really works for the overall tone of the movie. So curious fact number two, Ridley Scott's children are in the movie. One of the many things Alien is praised for is the grounded, credible costume design, such as the spacesuits the crew wear aboard the Alien ship. Those suits, though, caused some problems for the cast. They were huge and bulky, and the set was 38 degrees, so the cast would regularly pass out, meaning a nurse had to be on hand at all times. Also, to make the space jockey set look as big as possible, Ridley Scott and the DP Derek Valantes children would be shot in the suits, and when they started passing out too, they made modifications to the costume. So that is really, really crazy. Uh, the set already is really, really small, so now you're in these claustrophobic spacesuits, and people are passing out all over the place. Of course, it's going to get really, really hot, really, really stuffy in those tight suits. So they put their children in the suits to make them look bigger, uh, which is an interesting move on their part, I think. Uh, you know, but I guess you got to do what you got to do. Uh, thankfully, in today's movies, we don't have those problems, you know, with uh, tight claustrophobic spaces and people passing out. Uh, so just thought that was interesting. Curious fact number three here, the chest burster sequence involved impressive practical effects. Probably the most famous scene in the film is the moment that having been impregnated by a facehugger, an alien burst through Kane's chest at dinner. In order to accomplish this, the crew created a mechanical torso, laid it out on the table, and John Hurt, who had played Kane, lay under the table with his head, shoulders, and arms protruding through a hole in the table to make it all seem like one body. The mechanical torso was packed with animal guts and a small compressed air cannon. On activating the cannon, the torso burst open, the blood and guts spilled everywhere, and they pushed the alien puppet up from under the table. There's a myth that this scene was filmed in one take, but that isn't true because the mechanism didn't fire on the first time. So that's interesting. Um, very interesting to learn how they did the chestburster film, the chestburster scene in that first movie. I've always been curious about how they did that. In fact, I think if you go online and you look that up, you can actually see how they did that. Really cool, uh, really interesting stuff there. Uh, and the fact that they had that compressed air just shoot it up through uh, the chest prosthetic they used, really awesome. Uh, but in order to create the shock and horror he wanted, Ridley Scott purposely left some of the cast in the dark about what was coming. The script said that something would come out of Kane's chest, but other than John Hurt, none of the cast members knew any more than that. They weren't expecting it to be graphic, so Lambert's look of horror when she sprayed with blood was actress Veronica Cartwright's real reaction. Sigourney Weaver, Ripley, said she thought John Hurt might actually be dying, and she only stayed in character because nobody shouted cut. And 
Yafet Kato, who plays Parker, said that he went home that night in a state of shock. He locked himself in the bathroom and refused to talk to his wife for four hours. So that is insane to me. Nobody knew how this take was being shot, how graphic it was going to be, except for Kane himself. So all the reactions that you see in the film when you see this scene are completely genuine, so much to the degree that it partially traumatized Parker to where he couldn't even talk to his wife for four hours and locked himself in the bathroom. That's how you know your shots are good and that your reactions are incredible. So really, really interesting there. I did not know that. Uh, found that very, very fascinating. Uh, curious fact number four here, Ridley Scott shot a lot of the film himself. Despite the grand looking scale of Alien, much of the set was small and confined, meaning much of the movie had to be shot handheld. The art director of Alien was called Roger Christian, and he said 80% of Alien was shot on Ridley's shoulder, meaning Scott did a lot of the camera work himself. Scott had very specific ideas around how he wanted to light the film too, but he and director of photography Derek Van Lint had some major problems achieving Scott's vision. Most of the sets were corridors and low ceiling rooms, so lighting had to be set up through grills or by hiding lights or having actual lamps in the shot. Very interesting there. Sounds again very claustrophobic. The egg chamber sequence is one of is one that stands out for its extraordinary lighting, and there's an interesting story on how that came to be. When they were filming the sequence, world-famous rock band The Who were testing out lasers for their stage show next door. Scott asked the band's singer, Roger Deltrev, if they could borrow the lights, and those lights provided that eerie blue effect we see in the sequence. Really, really cool that they got The Who involved here, and because of them working next door, they were able to achieve some of the incredible lighting effects that we see in the movie. Really, really awesome stuff there. Uh, curious fact number five, Ridley Scott employed some unusual techniques when working with the cast in order to create the atmosphere of tension and paranoia he wanted on the film. Scott used a few tricks on the set. To heighten the sense of claustrophobia for the cast, Scott had the walls of the sets pushed slightly closer together every day, but didn't tell the actors he was doing it. That is really crazy to me, <laughs> but I guess that's a really ingenious way of creating a feeling of claustrophobia. Genius on his part, in my opinion. He wrote full backstories for each character and gave them to the actors before shooting and to try to create more natural tension between the characters, he asked Yapet Kato and Ian Holm to both antagonize Sigourney Weaver on the set when they shot the scene between Ripley, Parker, and Lambert, where they hatch a plan between every take, Yapet Kato would say to Weaver, come on, sister, you gotta give me more than that, until eventually she delivered the line we see in the film. Uh, so really interesting techniques that Ridley Scott used to create tension, used to create claustrophobia in the movie. Very ingenious, in my opinion. You know, I don't think a lot of uh, directors think along those lines these days. So it's just very ingenious on Ridley Scott's part, in my opinion. Ridley Scott, fantastic director. You know, he just did a phenomenal job on these movies and just a phenomenal job on that first Alien movie. You know, because as I said, that movie is what launched this entire franchise that we have today. Uh, so that's just a few of 
facts that I thought were pretty interesting surrounding that first movie in the franchise. And that's it, guys. That is episode number nine in the books on all things surrounding the Alien franchise. Again, this episode was a little bit longer uh, than last week's episode on the Predator franchise just because the Alien franchise is such a so much a bigger franchise. There's so much more to it. There's so much more connectivity to it. Uh, I absolutely love it. It's very horror-esque, very gory, very gritty, very dark, uh, and absolutely terrifying in parts. So definitely check it out. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, you know, I hope it has inspired you to check these movies out because they are absolutely fantastic. You know, as always, um, if you have any questions, any topic suggestions, uh, you know, regarding future episodes, episodes that you want me to do, or any questions about past episodes, you know, you can send those to the Curious Clubhouse at gmail.com. Uh, we'll get them there. Also, check out our Curious Clubhouse Facebook page where you'll find various photos from episodes. You'll find various articles and things relating to other pop culture media out there. Really cool stuff. Check that out. Also, you know, if you're looking for, if you're looking to start your own project, you know, whether it's your own YouTube channel, whether it's your own podcast like I'm doing here, you know, Twitch, whatever the case may be, if you're looking for royalty-free music, check out rad-audio.com for all of your royalty music needs. They're absolutely fantastic. I use music for some of my episodes from them. Absolutely really great people, really great music, just really great royalty-free content overall. So go over there, check them out, show them some love. Uh, They are really, really cool. So yeah, that's it, guys. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. You know, and as I said, this is being done. I'm recording this in advance, so this will come out the Friday after Thanksgiving. So I hope that everybody out there is having a fantastic Thanksgiving or have has had a fantastic Thanksgiving. You know, stay safe out there, guys. If you're traveling for the holiday, you know, stay safe. And as always, stay curious.